Matthew 21. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 9. I know that we finished a little further, but just want to give you a couple extra thoughts on this first part of Matthew 21. As you can see, I've put the um, outline of the chapter back up on the screen. Notice I changed it black because I wanted it to be a blackboard, and I even chose the font to be chalkboard. So this is as much as I can do now to make it uh, feel like a, a classroom. So before we get back into the chapter, let's pray and ask God to help us. I know I need it. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight. And uh, Lord, I don't know what buttons to push, but Lord, we need you to touch our hearts. We need you to guide us into all truth. Please speak to us. Help us tonight, Lord. Help us to look at these events that you have recorded and preserved down through history and see them with fresh eyes. Maybe we've seen it hundreds of times before, but let it be real to us tonight like like it never has been. Father, please um, remove all the distractions of the day. Let us focus in on, on you and your word for the next hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 21 and verse 9. And as you can see, we're dealing with the triumphal entry. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Sunday night, I explained to you what that phrase or that word Hosanna means. It comes from a Hebrew phrase in Psalm 118. And now the general crowd, there's a multitude that are laying down palm branches and their garments to bring the king right into the city. And then there's a multitude in Jerusalem that is seeing and hearing all of this going on. And they have questions. Verse 10, when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So while this conversation is happening, part of the crowd in Jerusalem is asking part of the crowd that's coming from Jericho, that direction that has been, let's say, moving with Jesus, bringing him, escorting him into Jerusalem. While that's happening, Jesus is up on the donkey. Everybody is having a wonderful time, rejoicing, praising God. But what about the heart of Jesus? What is he experiencing? Take your Bible, look at Luke chapter 19. Let me show you, there's a, a little passage here in Luke that we don't have in any other synoptic gospel. We don't have it in Matthew, Mark, just in Luke. And you can see in Luke 19, verse 36, 37, 38, this is the same triumphal entry verse 39 and some of the pharisees from among the multitude said unto him unto jesus master rebuke thy disciples and he answered and said unto them i tell you that if these should hold their peace the stones would immediately cry out what a tremendous thought that is that nature itself would begin to rejoice and speak and and it's hard to tell, is Jesus using an anthropomorphism? Is he speaking about the rocks and the stones as if they are human and can actually express themselves? Is this just a figure of speech? Or does he literally mean that the rocks, the stones will one day cry out? You read in the book of Psalms that the trees are going to clap their hands and the waves of the oceans will make you know certain noises. And there it seems like an anthropomorphism where it speaks of it as human as a figure of speech, but I don't know. Interesting. Look, look further, verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. 
I find it fascinating that the crowd is praising, shouting Hosanna. Some of them see this as Jesus, uh, the new king coming into Israel. Surely any moment this Messiah is going to con conquer our enemy. Jesus is sitting on that donkey. Maybe at this point, obviously, he might have dismounted from the donkey, looks over the city, and he is just heartbroken. And I wonder how many times could it be that maybe a church assembles, they're having a praise and worship service, and, and, and enjoying themselves, and yet Jesus steps out from, from the right hand of the Father and looks over the edge of heaven and looks down, and I wonder if his heart is breaking for some reason. Verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. They didn't realize that the Messiah had to suffer and die, that they needed to repent, that they couldn't receive the kingdom in their condition. Verse 43, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side, which happened. 37 years later with the uh, Roman general Titus, he came in and did all of this in, in Jerusalem. Verse 44, And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. He said, you guys, didn't you missed it. You think that it's just the Messiah conquered the enemy. You missed it. You missed all there was to that. Now, just we'll not take a look at it here because we're going to see it in Matthew, but he went into the temple, began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, and we're going to see more about that in Matthew. So come back to Matthew. I just wanted to give you that little, can we call it an interlude? That uh, It's another part of the story uh, about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, part of what happened there. So you can see his heart. He's heartbroken. There's grief over the spiritual condition of, of his people. Now, I'll just draw your attention one more time to the outline. We're going to look at the temple cleansing, the tree curse, the teaching authority, and then taking the vineyard. I'm going to go ahead and take this off the screen for now. But uh, in verse Matthew 21 and verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus had to go into the temple and cleanse it in this manner. And you can see that there's nothing calm about the way he's doing this. Now, obviously, he's not, he has not crossed over that line to where his anger has gotten the better, better of him and he's sinning. Uh, I, want, I want you to see it in John. Turn to John chapter 2. This is the first time that he cleansed the temple. Uh, John 2, and look with me at verse number 13. John 2 and verse number 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves. Now notice there's more than just doves. There's, there's oxen, there's sheep. We're going to talk more about these various animals in just a moment because they were used uh, in, as part of the sacrificial system there at the temple. And it says in verse 14, and the changers of the money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money 
and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now notice, nobody attributed this to some sort of wrongful wrath or you know, a, a, some outrageous behavior. In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This was an act of zeal, not rage. So come back to Matthew 21. Now with that in mind, um, he has already warned them about this type of behavior. And it's, if you just want to learn some practical lessons from this story, isn't it amazing how God can um, make it very clear how he feels about a certain thing, and yet we go right back to it, right back to it. Now, he, in, in Matthew 21 and verse 12, we read about the seats of them that sold doves, and we read about money changers. So there's two aspects to this I want to talk about. Uh, hold your place here. I want to show you a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14. It's going to help paint the picture of what's going on in the temple. Uh, by the way, your attendance code for the night is John 2 verse 14. We just looked at it a moment ago. Now it says Jesus, when he went into the temple, you're getting Deuteronomy 14. All right, Deuteronomy 14 will be in verse 24 in just a moment. But it, it, back in John 2, we read about Jesus making a, a whip, right? said a scourge, which is a whip, a scourge of small cords or small straps, if you want to think about it that way. I have a picture of it here. So let me get to the side a little bit, and you can see that that is one example, right? There's, there's several different examples of it. So this one is obviously, you can see it's twine and rope. You can have it made of leather, uh, but Jesus would have used something similar to that uh, for the scourge that he used to run the people out and the animals. Um, this, this was not a, it wasn't outrageous in a sinful way, but it certainly wasn't calm. You can't throw tables over in a calm way, right? There's no nice way to be about that. Uh, Deuteronomy 14. Now let's I want you to see here why people would need to be coming to the temple and buying uh, sheep, oxen, or or doves. Why would they need to do that? Let me take this down so I can sit in the middle again. Uh, Deuteronomy 14 and verse 24. It, it says, If the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. So he's talking about the temple. He says, if you live too far away and you are not able to take your sacrifice, whatever animal it is, to the temple, then what you can do is, verse 25, then thou shalt turn it into money and bind up the money in thine hand and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. So God had made provisions under the law for people that lived far away. It wasn't reasonable for them to bring, you know, walk their oxen or sheep all the way from a far off city to Jerusalem to make these uh, these regular sacrifices, these annual sacrifices they needed to do. So it was all right. You could sell the animal in your hometown, bring the money 
to the temple area, and it would be somewhere in Jerusalem, just outside of the way it worked out. It was just outside the official temple area, the outer court area. Uh, you could purchase the, the animal there, right? What happened is people began to abuse that. So you could sell the ox for X amount of rand. I'm using rand, right? But then when, when you get to the temple area, to the outer court, all of a sudden you're not paying X. It's not, it's, it's not an even trade here. You're going to be paying Y amount, which is going to be a much greater amount. People are making a lot of money off of this. Uh, also, the money changers, you can come back to Matthew 21, money changers, these are modern terms, we would call this the Forex Bureau. I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally or if you've uh, had to cross the borders of South Africa into a place where they use a different currency, but you've most likely visited a Forex Bureau if you did. Well, when you go there, you have to change, let's say, rand into dollars or rand into quacha or whatever the case is. Uh, you have to pay a fee for that. And you're always going to lose money in the deal. Always. The the guy changing the money, he is going to take a little fee for himself. And the Jews had the same setup. Remember that th th there were Jews living all over the then known world, right? They're that kingdom. Uh, there were some as far as Rome. They were down in Egypt. They were over in Babylon. And Jews knew that at least three times a year, they had to make what we would call a pilgrimage to the temple, make these sacrifices. So they didn't have the local currency on them. They had to bring the money from wherever they lived and then change it when they got to the temple area. And these money changers, had they saw an opportunity. Rather than making a fair deal, they're making a killing off of this. So these people around the temple, they have turned it into a den of thieves, which you can see, Matthew 21 and 13. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, just for the sake of time, we won't look at it, but you can make a note here. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Uh, you can see in that verse, now Jeremiah, that context is uh, right before Judah is destroyed, right? Right before Zedekiah is taken off into captivity. And the Lord said the same thing. Well, Jeremiah, on God's behalf, said the same thing about the temple at that time. This will be 586 B.C. He said, you've made this house a den of robbers. In that verse here, it's a den of thieves. And it's a, it's a shame, but it's, it's the truth that even today there are still people that abuse the house of God and make merchandise of God's people, right? That's in 2 Peter 2, verse 3. Is it verse 3? Yeah, I think it's verse 3 where it talks about uh, false teachers making merchandise. And I think we're all aware of it, you know, that some, some preachers, they're in it just for the fame and the fortune. They'll say whatever good words and fair speeches are necessary to make a quick buck. Uh, breaks the heart of God, and it gets him fired up, right? It gets, it gets his zeal going, and... Jesus doesn't take that lightly. He'll go in and throw the tables over, and even if he needs to make the point and exclamate the point by using a scourge or a whip, he'll do so. Now, the house should be a house of prayer. And this, if you look at that cross-reference, it's Isaiah 56, verse 7. The house of prayer is actually meant for all nations. 
uh, so not just Jews, but it, the, the idea of it, the ultimate idea was to have everybody, Jew and Gentile, in that house praying and worshiping and praising God together. That's never going to happen with people surrounding the temple making a, a, a quick buck, making a business out of it. So verse 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, those are the people that, that need special attention. And it's, it's interesting to find that note put in the middle of this story. Jesus cleansing the temple, being confronted by the chief priests and the scribes. And yet, even with all that confrontation going on, and when you see chapter 21, 22, 23, it is nothing but in-your-face confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, who Jesus would go on to call hypocrites of the worst sort. In the midst of that, he still has this minister's heart, this servant's heart that we read about at the end of chapter 20. Verse 15, And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. Now, the children crying in the temple, this is leftovers from the triumphal entry. And, and forgive me, I don't, I don't mean to use the wrong word, but for lack of a better term, the parade that came with Jesus entering into the into Jerusalem. And now that parade has continued with the children in the temple still crying out what the multitude was crying earlier, Hosanna to the Son of David. So based on what Jesus had just done in the temple and based on what these people, these children, are crying out, the chief priests and scribes, they're, they're offended at this. And verse 16, And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? So Jesus, as he's known to do to answer the skeptic or the cynical, the cynic, he, uh, he quotes scripture. And this time he quoted Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. A perfect verse to answer them because there's little children, right? Crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Um, so he's saying, you guys... You, you, you're the leaders. You should know what's going on. You've missed it. You've, you haven't been paying attention to the signs of the times and all the miracles and preaching and teaching that Jesus had done. But these little ones, they get it. They get it. He says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, that was perfected praise. They're, they're doing it out of a genuine spot in their heart. These little kids, they're not saying this because, and I say little kids, right? Let's, let's bear in mind that Jesus, what was it, back in Matthew 18, he talked about these little ones that have angelic representation. He talked about how they need to be saved. So we, we know that there were children uh, at, at the time of Jesus' ministry. We're not sure of their age, but they were old enough to understand the claims that Jesus was making. And they believed those claims. They, they had a, a level of understanding well enough to, to put all that together. They, they weren't shouting this out. Uh, you know, they, they weren't praising the Lord to be recognized by man or for some uh, you know, financial gain or fame. They were doing it simply because they believed it to be true. All right, so Matthew 21 and verse number 17. Now, bear in mind, if I can just point it out quickly, Luke 19 
what we what I showed you earlier about them, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests saying, Jesus, please tell your disciples to calm down and quiet down. It works perfectly, right? If you put Luke, Luke 19 and Matthew 21, what we just read, if you put it next to each other, they supplement each other perfectly. So verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. Verse 19, uh, 18, now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. So let me pause for a moment here because I'm not going to take a long time to deal with this issue. But generally, any skeptic of the Bible, any critic of it, when they get to this passage, they start raising red flags and say this, the, the chronology is all off and that the order of events doesn't match uh, the other Gospels. So let me point this out. In, there is no contradiction to this. The timing is, is laid out perfectly. What you have, however, is two different authors writing about the same events from two different angles. Matthew is focused solely on the event itself, what happened at the temple. He tells that story. And then he goes on to talk about what happened with the fig tree being cursed. He concentrates on that. Matthew is not so interested in the timing of it. And you can see that he does give some elements of timing now in the morning, right? So he, he, we, we grant that. But when it comes to the actual chronology, this happened and then this happened, this was followed by that, that's not Matthew's focal point. When you read this same information in Mark's gospel, then you get not only the, the facts of the events and what happened and where, but you also get the when. Mark does a wonderful job of giving you all of the chronology. So I'm going to put this up on the screen. I think you've, you've seen this at some point. This is the, I got the book here in my hand, um, but this is the book I put together to answer Dr. Shabir Ali's supposed 101 contradictions in the Bible. Page 82 and 83 and 84, and in the edition that I have, I deal with, there's two questions in this book. Um, I'll just read them to you quickly. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, did he cleanse the temple that same day? So I deal with that, and it's, it's question number 45. And then number 46, the Gospels say that Jesus cursed a fig tree, did the, did the tree wither at once? So both of these things, as far as the critic is concerned, if you, if you want to answer what people think is a contradiction, then I would suggest that you look this up in the book and you'll get a more detailed um, answer that I'm going to give you tonight. Tonight, we're just trying to take what Matthew gave us and understand it uh, from this particular context. But so that you know, Jesus, when he, when he got to Jerusalem, he saw what was going on in the temple, and then he actually went out to Bethany and slept there that night. Then the next day, came back in and cleansed the temple. Now, now you get all the chronology of this in Mark's gospel, as I said. Matthew, we just get the details of what he did in the temple. So back to our focal now focal point here in Matthew, 19, uh, Matthew 21, verse 19. So he's, he's hungry. He's returning into the city, into Jerusalem, that is. Verse 19 says, And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. 
Now, let me point out a few things about this. Number one, it does not say that the disciples saw the fig tree wither away at that moment. When Jesus cursed this tree, it, as Matthew writes, presently it withered away. And that's true. He curses it. Jesus and the apostles are walking off. And the fig tree right then and there withers away. The next day, the disciples are walking past that same area and they see that the fig tree has withered away. So there's no, there's no issues as far as the contradiction of, or, or some, some say it's a mistake that it, Jesus, uh, it says it presently withered and then they only saw it the next day. So some say, well, it, it didn't wither until the next day. They just didn't see it until the next day. Um, another thing you want to notice about verse 19, people often say, this is unfair. Jesus goes to this fig tree. He finds on it leaves only and then curses it. Why? Why Why curse it for not having fruit? In one of the other gospels, it even goes as far as to say that it the, the time of fruit was not yet. So how can Jesus be upset with this tree for not having fruit if the time of fruit haven't even arrived? And even if the time of fruit had, why, why go out of your way to curse the tree? So there's a there's a little bit of investigation that needs to be done with this because it's an interesting scenario and it actually bears out uh, some deep truth, in my opinion. Take your Bible, look at Nahum chapter 3. Nahum, Old Testament minor prophet. Nahum chapter 3 and verse number 12. Now you'll find this uh, phrase a couple times in the, in the Old Testament. Nahum 3.12 it says here, all thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, why am I showing you this verse? I want you to see that in Israel, there was such a thing as the first ripe fig. Fig, sorry. First ripe fig. That fig you could expect to see on the trees right about March. Yeah? That's when the first ripe figs would be appearing. And then you have the fully ripe figs that would be ready for harvesting more like June, July. Now, the time that we're reading in Matthew 21, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, it's right about March. So this is the time that you would expect to see some first ripe figs and you could shake the tree and a few of them would fall off and you could have a quick snack. Now this also makes sense of why one of the other gospels says the time of fruit was not yet. That is that that full fully ripened time, that harvest time. That hadn't come yet. But first ripe figs you should have been able to find some of those. Now it's true from I think the right word would be a botanical sense. When you look at the tree, if there is no first ripe figs in March, then you're not going to have anything in June or July. So this tree is proving by having leaves, right? It's, it's alive, but it's fruitless. But what's, what's the deeper lesson here? Why go out of your way to curse it? This fig tree perfectly represents the, the nation of Israel in Jesus's day, that wicked and adulterous generation. 
They had the leaves of self-righteousness. They had a religious system. They had a temple. They had sacrifices going on. Chief priest overseeing the whole thing. So the leaves were there, but where's the fruit? Where is the fruit? Now, where's the first ripe fruit? The small stuff that you should be seeing, the indicators that the nation is turning in the right direction. Because if you don't see that initial first fruits, then you're not going to have the fully ripened harvest later that, in this case, the establishment of the kingdom, it's not going to happen. So the reason Jesus, I believe, curses the fig tree is to illustrate what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. Covered in self-righteous self -righteous fig leaves, Genesis 3, that's what Adam tried to do, right? Cover up with a fig leaf. They were trying to cover their sins with their religious rigmarole. And they don't have the fruits meet for repentance. So Jesus says, this generation cursed. Now, let's be careful because if we say that Israel is cursed, full that, that is completely, utterly, the nation of Israel gone, then you end up uh, with some false doctrine because let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. Well, we know from Romans chapter 11 that one day all Israel shall be saved. So I believe what we're dealing with is that generation, that wicked and adulterous generation. Jesus said, you guys have made your decision. You have crossed the line. And now, because of your rejection, because you don't have the fruits of repentance, you're not going to see this kingdom. Not you guys. And this will match uh, with, with the parables that Jesus is going to give later on in the chapter. All right, verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Again, as you read Matthew, you would think that they stood there and watched it wither right in front of their eyes. And, and as I say, you read the other Gospels, you know that's not exactly how it happened. But when they did see it, they were still blown away because the day before, it's, it's a living tree. It has leaves. It looks fine. But then the next day, boom, withered up, dried up, dead. How soon is the fig tree withered away? Verse 21. By the way, it matches the state of Israel, right? One day, here's the nation. Looks like they have a chance. Turn around and then the Romans wipe them out. But verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. So we have a wonderful lesson and a prayer promise, a lesson about prayer and a prayer promise. Now, the two aspects to this, the fig tree being withered so quickly, and this is a curse. He says, you guys could do this, but you can do something even greater. So he takes the fig tree. That's an amazing act of power just in that. But he says, that, guys, you can actually take the mountain and move it into the sea, which is several kilometers away, right? The, the Dead Sea would be the closest body of water that it could be cast into, which is, like I said, far, far away. So this has got to be... I mean, imagine if you're standing there and hearing Jesus say this to you. 
that if you pray, you can see these kind of things happen. Boy, I, I, I just don't have time to dig, to unpack this completely. But think this through. The fig tree being cursed. Your prayer, you can ask God, right? Please, God, punish that person. I, I realize, man, you say, ooh, I, I would never pray like that. I'd pray that they, you know, get right and repent. And yes, that's where you start. But you know as well as I, there are some places in the New Testament where you, you have tried to meekly and gently instruct that person. You've approached them. They don't want to repent. And as the last-ditch effort, what you do is you, Paul said, pray and deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. See? So there is a time and a place where your prayers are aimed in that direction. But then there should also be this even greater prayer, your heart's desire that such a person gets saved. Right? God, please, whatever is blocking that person, whatever mountain is in their way, remove that thing so that they can get to you. Um, let's be careful when we look at this prayer promise that we balance it with the other verses that talk about prayer. When the apostles are told, whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. This isn't, this isn't the Lord saying, I'm an ATM. Ask me whatever you want and I'll just grant all your wishes. Obviously, right? We have to pray for things that are within the will of God. We have to pray for things that will glorify the Father. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you, but if you want to write this down in the margin, John chapter 14, I think this verse does a great job of balancing what we're learning in Matthew 21. Uh, John 14 and verse 13, Whatsoever ye shall ask, the, uh, ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. But, but notice it's qualified by saying that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we pray, if, if we are praying, God, I know this is something that you want to happen. And I, my intention is to glorify, your, glorify you through your Son. And all of that comes together. Then we pray believing that God is going to do something. He is going to respond to that prayer. Whether or not it gets answered precisely the way we asked, that depends on the situation. Because there might be a better way to, for that thing to turn out than, than what we're asking. And let's also remember, when you're dealing with a fig tree or a mountain, neither of those are living entities that has a will and a choice. Right? When you're praying, oh God, save someone, save this person. Uh, help this person to overcome you know, such uh, sins and, and uh, get victory in these things. Those individuals have a free will. They have a choice. So what we do is pray, God, remove the mountain. Right? Get, get these various things, these stumbling blocks out of their way so that they can make a better decision. But we have to remember that, that God, even, even God, will not override free will to force a person to do something. But I will tell you, I have not nearly enough, not nearly enough, but I've seen the power of 
Matthew 21, verse 22. I've seen what I would equate to a few mountains being removed, right? Things that I did not see. How are we going to get from here to there? How is this going to work out? And going to God in prayer and saying, God, I don't know what to do about this. This is unmovable by my standards. This is impossible by my standards. I've got to, God, you've got to do something or else I can't go any further. And my heart's desire, God, is just to bring people to you. They can see you through your son. And God, if I can't get around this mountain, get, can't get through or over this mountain, God, I, then this ministry is going to stop. My usefulness is going to stop. God, please. And so many times I've seen God come through. And it wasn't anything, that, it wasn't me manipulating the situation. It was just an answer to prayer. Don't doubt the change you can make by taking your time in the prayer closet seriously. It makes a difference. Now, in verse 23, And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Now, I believe that they are asking him this in relation to two things. Number one, he's throwing over tables and chasing out money changers. Who gave you authority to do that? But also we see here he's teaching. Who gave you authority to stand up in the temple and, and lead all of the services here, right? And now Jesus isn't doing the job of a priest, so he's not, he's not taking over that. But there were such things as teaching priests. And here Jesus is doing the teaching. Who gave you authority to stand up and just quote-unquote take over? Now, there's two ways that Jesus could respond. If he, had he said, God told me to do it. Now, first of all, let's, let's recognize that Jesus had already made it clear that the Father had given him authority. Right. John chapter 5, verse 17, verse 18. Uh, John 5, verse 30. Right. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. Jesus had already made it abundantly clear that he was not the one calling the shots. He was doing what the Father wanted him to do. He was busy about his Father's business. But had Jesus said, God told me to do this, he told me to cleanse the temple. He told me to teach these things. Then, as you can see in verse 23, the chief priests probably would have responded by saying, but wait, it was God who set up the Levites over the priesthood. You're not of the tribe of Levi, so you have no authority here. Now, I understand that I'm, I'm making an educated guess as to what they might have responded there. But that, that's one angle. That's one angle. Had Jesus said, well, such and such a man gave me this authority, which obviously he wouldn't have said that. That wasn't the case. But had he said that, then the chief priest would have challenged the authority of that man and said, but that man has no right, has no authority in this place. This is our place. We, we're in charge of what goes on here. So Jesus very discreetly, very wisely answers in this way. Verse number 24, Jesus answered and said unto them, 
I also will ask you one thing, which, if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a bit cheeky, but this is how Jesus deals with the, with the cynics. Verse 25, the baptism of John. Whence was it? Where, where did it come from? From heaven or of men? Which is another way of saying, did God send John, John the Baptist, to do that ministry? Or did some man send John to do it? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? Well, yeah, exactly. That's, that, is, <laughs> that is how that would have turned out. Verse 26, But if we shall say of men, we fear the people. For all hold John as a prophet. So I think that their answer would have been of men. If, 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 I'm, if I'm reading the situation correctly, I don't think they would have said that God was the one who sent John the Baptist. That being said, what man would you point to to say, John the Baptist went to so-and-so's Bible school and was authorized and has an, an accredited degree from that school and that person gave John this authority. They, they wouldn't have been able to answer that either, right, intelligently. But they knew either way we go with, with these two responses, we're not going to come out looking very good. If we say God told them to do it, why didn't we believe him? If we say of men, you know, the people are going to hate us because they think John was a great guy. And listen, any time that you're afraid of public opinion, you're not going to be able to grasp the truth. If you make decisions based off of shame or honor, if, if this will make me more honorable in the eyes of the people, I'll do this. I'll believe this. If this brings me shame, then I stay away from that. If that's how you make decisions, then you're rarely going to end up on the right side of things, whether it's a belief or a practice. And because they're afraid of the people, right? That's a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. Jesus, he said it so well in John chapter 5. I, I can't improve upon it. Let me just read you what he read. How, John 5, 44. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? That's one of the keys to getting it right, is not to be worried what your peers think about it. And let me, is it all right if I, if I just take a moment to be abundantly honest, probably too honest about this? You know what happens. You, you go to Bible school, you learn, you get a lot of truth, and it all depends, you know, where you start off, which Bible school you went to. Some are obviously better than others. But as time goes on, you start to study things for yourself and learn things for yourself. And you go, you know what? My final authority is the Bible, not my Bible school. My final authority is God, not that man of God that taught me things in Bible school. He's, my pastor is not my final authority. Right? Even though God might have ordained him, put him into the ministry, that man is not my final authority. So as you learn, 
there will be a temptation to say, yo, I, I don't feel free to be honest and say, I don't agree with this and that teaching because as soon as I do that Bible school where, where I went, these pastor friends that I have, if they find out that I don't line up in every single way with them, they might cross me off the list of acceptable fellowship. I might lose my support. Especially as a missionary, do I feel that? You say, what do you do? Well, you just stay honest. You just stay honest. You, you'd be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I don't go around advertising every single little doctrine that I don't agree on with someone else. But I have to stay careful to be honest and truthful and concerned about one opinion only. What does God think of me? What does God think about this teaching or this practice? And answer it that way. Now, back to this, verse 27. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. What a great... This is a classic example of Proverbs 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. He, Jesus dodges the question because he knows no matter what answer he gives them, it's not going to satisfy them. So he gives them a question that brings to light their insecurity. That, that's the perfect way to deal with that. Notice, though, that the problem is authority. Who gave you the right to say and do these things? And that's always going to be the issue. What authority, by what authority do we stand up to preach, not only in church, but to tell the gospel, to repeat the gospel to our friends and neighbors, and to try to minister to people on any level? Who gave us this right? Who are we to stand up and say, this is the right way to act, and this is the right way to believe? Where did we get this authority? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's not a pastor. It's not a, it's not a Bible school that gave you a certificate or a degree. If you have a Bible and you have the Holy Spirit living within, you have all the authority you need. Now, verse 28, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Now notice the second boy that he went to was very polite. I go, sir. Very polite. Ya manir. But he didn't go. So it sounded good. The leaves were on the tree, no fruit. Now the first boy, he didn't give a very good response at first. He didn't start off so well. He just flat out rejected and rebelled. I will not, but he ends up getting it right. Now, if you could put the two boys together, man, you're spot on. Be polite. Nothing wrong with being polite. I go, sir, and then go out in the vineyard and work. That's, that's the gold medal, right, if you can do both. But you're going to see this parable that Jesus is using, the two groups that he's uh, pointing at here. Verse 31, Whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him the first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Oh, man. 
Ouch. Now, obviously, obviously, the publicans and harlots, it's not that they're walking in unrepented, right? They repented. As we can see in the parable, they start off bad, but then they repent and go to work in the vineyard. And that's what happened. You can see in John's ministry and even into Jesus's ministry, it continued to happen. Verse 32, for John came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. So they, they saw John's ministry from start to finish. They saw not just that people were getting baptized and that John was having a crowd gather, but they saw lives changing. They saw publicans, tax collectors, harlots, prostitutes getting right, giving back the money, stopping that lust-filled business that they, they, they changed their lives. And these religious leaders did nothing with that information. What a statement at the end of verse 31. They go into the kingdom of God before you. Boy, that had to have been a, a slap in the face for those religious leaders. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. What is this? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. God settles the people in the land. He gets the land built up. He gets the nation built up. He organizes them. And then he says, okay, guys, I I've given you all the organizing that you need. Now, you guys are going to run this country, take care of this vineyard according to the system that I've given you. And he lets it out to the husbandman. And then if you, if you read carefully, the account in Exodus, the angel with a capital A, the angel of the Lord escorted Israel out of Egypt and got them into the land of Canaan. Even into the book of Joshua, you read about that angel being there. So, that matches perfectly, right? He gets them into the land, gets them established, and then God's presence in that way goes on. But, verse 34, And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen. So the servants, you find this phrase over and over again in the Old Testament. His servants, the prophets. His servants, the prophets. That phrase is very common. So these servants that are being sent to the nation of Israel. God raises up a man and, and, and says, go tell him, thus saith the Lord. Talk to the leadership of Israel, both the political and the spiritual, the religious leadership, and see where they're at. They're going to speak on behalf of the, of the nation. He sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. So let's, let's hear from you. Uh, where are you at with God? Are you doing it God's way? Verse 35, and the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So what fruit was the owner of the vineyard, the householder? What is he expecting? Well, if we look at this from the aspect of God, God wants his people walking humbly, justly, doing right. You can read this in Micah 6 verse 8. Uh, 
In Isaiah, you get a slightly different list. In Ezekiel 18, you have a different list. God describes what a just man would look like. Those were the fruits that he's looking for. But the nation didn't bring any of that out. Instead, they mistreated each of these prophets. So they beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. So you can see in the prophetical writing of the Old Testament, the minor and major prophets, there there are two waves of prophets. You have one with the destruction of the northern tribes, Israel, and then you have another wave of prophets uh, with the destruction of the southern tribes. Now, there were other prophets at other times, but you have two big waves of them coming through then. I think it answers to what we're reading here. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. Verse 37, but last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. Well, you'd like to think so, right? You'd like to think so. Verse 38, but when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. Now, it's because of of this verse that some people say that the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they knew that Jesus was the Son of God and killed him anyway. I'm, I'm not convinced that this verse is going to carry the weight of that argument. Uh, just turn quickly with me. Time is short here, but I want to show you this quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Look with me at verse number 8. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8. Paul said, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I do not think that the princes of the world, the the, the leaders of Israel in this case, I do not think they knew who Jesus was specifically, that he was, they knew the claims that he was making, but they didn't believe it, right? They knew that he had claimed to be the son of God, the Messiah, They didn't believe it. But why would they then say, according to this parable, this is the heir, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. Now, within the parable, right, obviously these husbandmen know that it is the son of the householder. Within the parable, yes. But what's the lesson Jesus is trying to teach with the parable? That these husbandmen are going to kill the son because he's the heir and he's about to inherit everything. So look with me in John chapter 11. John 11. I don't think that the chief priests and Pharisees, they didn't believe Jesus was the son of God, but they did believe that he was about to inherit everything. John 11 and uh, get with me verse 47, 47. It says here, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And that's when Caiaphas hatches the plan to have Jesus terminated so that they can continue on as they were before. All right, so come back to Matthew 22 or 21 rather. So I believe that they knew in their minds this man Jesus, they thought he was an imposter. They thought he was uh, lying about these claims 
about being the son of God, but they knew he at the very least is going to raise up such a massive following because of all these things he's doing. Everybody, the common man, right? They love him. He's eventually going to become so popular. He's, he's going to become the face of the nation. The Romans are going to come and attack and we're going to lose everything. So they said, let's kill him so that we can continue to have the land under our control. So Matthew 21 and 39, and they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Interestingly enough, when Jesus died, he died on Mount Calvary, which is just outside of the city. So they cast him out. You can read in Hebrews 13, it says, let us go to him without the gate, suffering or bearing his reproach. Verse 40, when the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? I love how Jesus ends the parable on a question, makes him think. What do you think is going to happen to those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. So the householder, help me on this. Think this through with me a little bit because I, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't really bounced this idea back and forth with, with anybody else. When the Lord, therefore, the vineyard cometh. In the parable, the son of the Lord would match up with Jesus. But then it says, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, well, then that would be the father. But now we know, according to the parable, one day Jesus is going to come back and destroy those, the, the, the wicked, he is the Lord of the vineyard. So forgive me if I'm if I'm working this I'm working this through in my mind as I as I'm saying it to you. If the parable has the householder and his son, the father and Jesus, but then you have the Lord coming back to destroy those people, that's Jesus. According to the parable, it's the Father. Wouldn't this then speak to the divinity, the deity of Jesus? That he is claiming that I'm not only the son, I'm also the owner of the thing. That there's, he's claiming some sort of a connection there. I, I, I think we can understand it like that. But anyway, food for thought. Fruit for thought. Maybe you can give me some feedback on that idea. Verse 41, they'll, uh, they answer, he will just miserably destroy those wicked men, let out, the husband, uh, let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now he's quoting from Psalm 118, Verses 22 and 23, which is interesting because that's where we got that phrase about Hosanna to the son of David, right? Hosanna comes from there. And he says, guys, listen to the point I'm making. The same one you're rejecting is the same one that's going to be the head. Man, doesn't that line up with what I was trying to explain a moment ago? The same one that you're killing is going to be the head. But... The, when you read this in Psalm 118, it's a great story. The stone which the builders rejected. There's Within Jewish tradition, there's a story that says that when Solomon began to build the temple, 
that, and you know this from, from first Kings, you read this, that they did not cut the stones there at the temple site. They, they cut the stones at a query somewhere else. And then they would have the stones moved to the temple site and, and assembled there, put together there. So the first stone that was cut was different from all the other stones. Every other stone, same shape and size. But the first stone that they sent to the work site from the query, it was an oddly shaped stone, not what the builders were expecting. And therefore the builders pushed it over a cliff down into a bit of a valley. And that oddly shaped stone that they weren't expecting just sat there. It didn't measure up to their requirements, to, to what they had in mind. And the rest of the stones came and they built the temple up. And then when it was finally time to put the last stone, the capstone, the headstone, when it was time for that one to be put in its place, they couldn't find it. They sent word to the quarry and said, where is this stone that, that should be put in last? They said, we sent it first. And that's when the builders remembered, ah, we pushed it over the cliff into that valley. And it took a lot of time and strength and effort. They finally pulled it up. It was all covered in moss and debris of various sorts because it had been in that valley for a while. But they pulled it up and finally set it as the headstone. It's amazing how... The, and that story, right, according to, according to Jewish tradition, that is what gave rise to the verse... In Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected became the head of the corner. Jesus, they, they know the history of this, but now Jesus is giving the prophetical aspect of this. I'm the stone that's being rejected, but one day I'll be the headstone. Uh, verse 43, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now forgive me, time is getting away. I'm, I'm so sorry. It's too much to talk about in all of these verses. First um, Peter chapter two. I, I just need a couple minutes just to finish this. First Peter chapter two and verse number nine. When Jesus says, "The kingdom of God will be taken from you," now, kingdom of God, I believe he is referring to the political aspect of it, but also the personal, right? That that spiritual kingdom that's not being offered to them now because they they're not repenting but it's going to be given to another nation now it's not as if Jesus is pointing to just one people group and saying it's going to be given to the Canaanites or you know Avites or whatever the other nation in 1 Peter 2:9 he says but ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood and holy nation a peculiar people He's referring to the body of Christ. He's talking about anybody saved in this age. And just so that you can see it, 1 Peter 2, just let your eyes go up a couple verses. Do you see the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense? Do you see that? They stumbled at the word. So come back to Matthew 21. So you and I, we are part of this nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Uh, verse 44, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. Right? You can write in the margin Romans 9, verse 32. Uh, the people that stumble at the stumbling stone, right? they end up broken. They, they're lost. So we read in Romans 9 how the Jews sought it not by faith. They tried to establish their own, their own righteousness. They stumbled at Jesus. 
He is that stumbling stone. So whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. He takes it a step further. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. There's a reference to the second coming. And that links in to that miserable destruction of the wicked men that the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priest answered correctly there. So Jesus, when he comes back, you can read in Daniel 2 that part of the mountain is cut out and he slams down on his, on his uh, enemies. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. <laughs> Jesus didn't try to hide it too, too much. He, he made that one pretty clear for him. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So they, by this point, had already hatched this plan to have Jesus taken out, right? All of that was in motion already, but they couldn't just grab him. They had to find a way to get the people behind this as well. And we know within a week's time, the people are going to be crying out, away with him, crucify him. They, they work on the, on the multitude to change their minds. All right, that's where we're going to stop for tonight. Forgive me for a few extra minutes, but I do appreciate your patience. Um, I'm just checking over here. I don't see any questions. So I'm going to pray and we're going to close. And I appreciate you guys tuning in. And Lord willing, you tune in tomorrow again uh, for Francois' lesson in Philippians. Father, thank you for this evening, the opportunity to look at all these, these truths, Lord. And uh, Father, there's so much that, Lord, honestly weighs on my heart that I'd like to say just Help me to do a better job of putting all of the necessary information into one hour, God. How do we do that? Lord, help us to be honest with you. Help us to be honest with our, with the people around us. Father, help us not to be afraid of man. Lord, help us to bring forth the fruits that you desire. The fruit of, a, of an honest, humble, righteous, holy walk with you. Lord, I pray that one day soon uh, you would split the skies and take us home, Lord. We look forward to that day. And until that day, we want to be busy in your vineyard. You said go work. We want to go work. Thank you for this privilege to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord willing, we'll see you guys again soon.